Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. I hear Missouri Botanical Garden and immediately envision sprawls of beautiful, lush flora. But Mobot's more than that. It's got a team of scientists who specialize in plant conservation, identification, and preservation. And for every gorgeous live plant we see in its gardens, a preserved specimen goes into what's called an herbarium, essentially a plant library of samples collected, pressed, and preserved. Mobot's herbarium holds millions of these specimens. Some are centuries old, and they even have specimens of plants that are completely extinct, the kind of deadness caused by natural selection, for instance. It might have been just so dang delicious a group of herbivores ate them all up. Or those blasted homo sapiens coming through and messing everything up with overpopulation and pollution. So a group of local scientists are working with conservationists across the world to identify what extinct plant species they have in their collections and how they can bring them back to life. Producer Maya Norfleet sat down with Missouri Botanical Garden conservation scientist Matthew Albrecht and Garden Herbarium Director Jordan Teicher to learn more about Mobot's part in this global conservation effort. Matthew, how did the garden get involved with this worldwide effort to bring extinct plant species back from the dead? Yeah, so this was a project um, started by a colleague and collaborator in Italy at the University of Romatre. His name is Dr. Thomas Abelli and his graduate student, Giulia Albany Rochetti. And they contacted me to um, look at herbarium specimens at the Missouri Botanical Garden of Extinct Species in the Wild. And they were working with a group of 35 researchers all over the world who worked in different herbaria. And each one of those herbaria contains plant species that are extinct in the wild. How many herbaria were reached out to in this effort? 61 herbaria participated in this particular research study. And then Jordan... How does the Missouri Botanical Gardens Herbarium compare to others in the world when it comes to size and number of specimens? So we are one of the largest collections in the world. Uh, We have about 7.75 million specimens uh, preserved in the collection. Um, We're a little bit different than some of the other very large herbaria, uh, so like Kew, New York. They'll also include things like fungi and lichens and algae that were historically thought to be plants but are now known to be, in the case of fungi, for example, more closely related to animals than plants. And a decision was made through its history that Missouri was just going to focus on plants. So we have mosses, liverworts, and hornworts, and then all the vascular plants, but no, no fungi. And vascular plants are the ones where you can kind of like see the veins? Yes, exactly. Okay. Of the selected plants that scientists are going to try and bring back, which ones are housed in the gardens or barium? So what we did for this project is we searched 
um, 80 herbarium specimens representing 51 plant species that are extinct in the wild. And we searched each one of those 80 specimens for seeds. And of those 80 specimens, we found 12 specimens that contain seeds on them, representing four plant species that are extinct in the wild. And how, how long have those plant, those four, how long have they been extinct in the wild? Um, they vary uh, in, in time since extinction. Um, one of the earliest specimens was collected almost 140 years ago. Okay. <laughs> so really no one alive today has even seen that, that plant in particular. Which one is that one? Uh, that would be uh, the short-fruited spike rush, Eleocharis brachycarpa. Is there a, a, a nickname for that one? <laughs> short-fruited spike rush is the common name for that one. Okay, the common name. So that one is 140 since... It's actually older than 140. That particular one's 187 years. Where did you get these seeds? Like, who was collecting these over a century ago and saying they're going to need this in Missouri one day? <laughs> so plant collecting internationally really picked up, um, I mean, several hundred years ago. The, the world's collections of herbarium specimens really start in coverage about 300 years ago. So our oldest specimen at Missouri is from the, the mid-1600s. Um, but the bulk of Missouri's collections were started after the garden was found in 1859. Um, but so it's, it's not uncommon to get 100-year-old, 200-year-old specimens, even in North American uh, institutions where collecting started later compared to Europe. I mean, I'm imagining that long ago, over 100 years ago, people weren't thinking this might happen in the future. <laughs> like, how, does con how has conservation changed from you know, about 300 years ago when these types of sciences were starting, people were collecting plants with a purpose to now, where you're thinking about, like, let's see if something might sprout. So in terms of herbarium collections, the oldest ones were initially started as teaching aids. So Luca Ghini was a medical doctor in uh, Italy in the 1500s. And he devised this way of being able to train his students. At that point, most medicines were uh, plant-based. So he had a garden that they would learn the plant identification in when during the, grows, during the growing season. But then in the winter, they would just have to rely on herbals, uh, these books about plants. The illustrations weren't great in those herbals at the time. Uh, now we have much better illustrations. But he found that by pressing the plants flat, drying them out, and putting them into a pages of a book, he could have his students study year-round. It moved from there during the age of exploration. People became really interested about uh, biodiversity around the world. So then people really started collecting um, with the main purpose being to describe uh, the new species that they found. It's gone through several different iterations as we just kind of continually discover new applications. When you have this, this verifiable, preserved record of life on Earth that herbaria and other natural history collections represent, um, there's there's almost no limit to the number of things. It's, it's just whatever kind of creative approach you can use. So we found you can get usable DNA out of specimens that have been dead for 150 years. And you have to make certain allowances for how the DNA might degrade a little bit, but people can, can sequence uh, almost whole genomes, or in some cases, full genomes from these, these dead plants. Um, stable isotopes, so you know different uh, forms of molecules, tell us a bit about what the ecology was like of the thing that we're looking at when it was alive or what its environment was like, those can be gotten out of, uh, out of these herbarium specimens. So 
um, this is now an, an, another kind of interesting layer of seeds were sort of collected for herbarium specimens incidentally. So it's very different from a seed bank where the, there's a deliberate choice to go and try to preserve seeds. On herbarium specimens, it's just kind of lucky that they happen to be in fruit and in seed at the time that these species were collected. They probably didn't know they were going extinct. They definitely weren't thinking about, you know, 150 years later, let's mm -hmm. see if we can sprout them. Uh, it's just because we've kept them in good condition, uh, try to keep them away from bugs that would eat them, uh, that they're still preserved and potentially useful. I guess now the question is, so why? Like, we have the seeds, we have very smart people, we have technology. Why go through this process of now, like, I don't know, like, I, I'm, I know it's not like this, but this is how my brain works. I, I imagine lab, people in lab coats just poke and saying, do something. Like, why, why try now? What's the purpose? Well, our goal as conservationists is to prevent the extinction of plant species. And so if we have species that are extinct in the wild, but we have seeds available in these herbarium specimens, this gives us an opportunity to potentially germinate those species. We can grow them in a botanical garden. We can study these extinct species. Remember, many of these haven't been seen for decades to perhaps centuries. And so it gives us an opportunity to advance science and understand these particular species and we might have a better understanding of their relationships with modern-day plant species or their close relatives that are not extinct in the wild. Um, and in the case of evolutionary distinct species, it may give us um, a deeper understanding of um, the, the sort of types of, of, of morphologies and physiologies and potentially secondary chemical compounds that could be present in these species that might be useful for humans in some cases. So there's a great number of different reasons why we might want to work on a project to de-extinct these species. Okay. What is the difference between extinct and extinct in the wild? Like you've, I've heard you say that a couple of times. What does that mean? So extinct in the wild is a plant species that um, is not known to grow in a wild population, but it may still be living in collections in botanical gardens. Um, so we may still have live plant material. In the case of a extinct species, we have no known wild populations and there are no specimens living in a botanical garden. We only have specimens known from our herbarium. Okay. And then to bring them back and have them in the so to try to germinate these extinct plants, extinct everywhere, in the wild and in gardens, is to study them and see really, honestly, anything that we can find out about plants that haven't been alive in some decades or even some centuries. Is that the gist of it? Or am I, what am I missing? Well, so if you, if you think about, like, I think it's a broader question of why should we care about extinction in general? And there's several different reasons. One is the things that have gone extinct or that are going extinct, we can learn about what qualities that they might have that make them susceptible. You know, the earth is constantly changing and the things that were pressures in the past might become pressures again in the future. And so if we understand what makes a species at risk, then we can also try to predict what other species are going to be at risk. You know, even if that species maybe wasn't absolutely vital in the moment to human well-being, even from a purely selfish perspective, well, one of our, our choice precious plants that is vital to our well-being could be the next one depending on changing conditions. And then from a, a, general, a more general sort of scientific standpoint, each of these species represents a lineage that has been evolving for 
hundreds of thousands or millions of years. You know, tweaking uh, subtle changes to the genome, mm. adapting to its environments, weathering certain environmental changes. Uh, so they're, they each represent a real wealth of information about biology, uh, and there's you know almost an infinite number of things. You could spend your entire lifetime studying one species and just trying to understand how it lives in its world, how its genome works, how its physiology works. So the opportunity to study these things have, that have gone extinct are they're sort of interesting in particular because they have gone extinct, but also just interesting in general because they tell the broader story of life on Earth. I'm sitting here with Jordan Teicher, Garden Herbarium Director at Missouri Botanical Garden, and Matthew Albrecht, Missouri Botanical Garden Conservation Scientist. Once you figure out, like, okay, this plant died probably because of this reason, be it the world is changing or some herd of some animal just ate them all up, tore them up, can you predict where the plant will thrive if you're able to bring it back? Well, that's a that's a difficult question. I mean, because these species are extinct in the wild, and so we know very little about their ecology and and sort of the types of habitats they might need um, to thrive in in nature. Um, but I think by bringing these species uh, uh, back into the you know germinating them and then and then growing them and propagating them, we can conduct research on them to better understand what their habitat needs are, what kinds of environments they might thrive in, um, and that in turn could maybe help us better understand other species that grow in similar habitats and what might be the processes that might be uh, potentially threatening those species as well. So there's a lot to learn from studying an individual species uh, that we can apply to many other species as well. And with these plants too, I'm, I'm willing to bet it's not like you have hundreds of one type of specimen, right? Like, this is kind of risky, too, to even touch some of these or to, like, experiment on them. What happens if it doesn't germinate? Like, what happens then? Right. So this project is really at the very beginning stage of thinking about bringing a species, um, you know, resurrecting a species from an herbarium specimen. And this project was really geared at... um, First, assessing which species have seeds on their specimens and then ranking those species of which species might be the best candidates to focus on um, in a de-extinction project. And so this is really the very first step. The next step would be to study closely related species that are not extinct in the wild and to learn how to extract seeds uh, from from their herbarium specimens, learn how to germinate them, learn how to propagate them. And then, once we have that research information, then we might be able to try it with these species that only have a handful of seeds remaining on these herbarium specimens. So this is incredibly precious biological material that we don't want to waste. So we really want to have our research and our ducks in a row before we would actually go out and do a project like this. It would take many years of research before we got to this point. How many seeds do you have of each of the specimens that are in the botanical gardens? Um, that's Roughly. A, that's a good question because in this particular project, we were just checking to see if seeds were present or not. We okay. actually didn't count them. And so I think the next step in any research project would be to um, carefully examine those specimens, perhaps use x-rays to determine whether or not the seeds on the specimens are actually filled or not. Um, and and then for each dif- species, I think it's going to be a different number of seeds that might be available to us. 
And I think this brings up a really important point, and that's um, the longer the specimens sit there in storage, the more likely it is the seeds are going to lose viability. So it is a bit of a race against time, particularly for these species that we have specimens that are over 100 years old. Mm. With time, it's possible the seeds could be losing viability. Um, And so um, this kind of project was really looking at which species um, might be the best candidates based on how old the seeds might be and which species might have seeds that are most likely to survive storage in an herbarium for decades to perhaps centuries. So when I was talking with the garden's public information officer, Catherine Martin, she said um, that this experiment is something like a less dangerous Jurassic Park. <laughs> like dinosaurs, we're having like a best guess of what some of these even these plants even look like. Is that even something that y'all are concerned about? I would say it's it's definitely less dangerous because in this case they're uh, you know a couple centuries old and the world is always changing but it's not quite changing necessarily as much as it's changed since the Jurassic <laughs> uh, so in this case you know they're if you were resurrecting for example long extinct plants or even just moving plants around globally and having them grow somewhere they didn't there is some danger involved in that you don't know how they're going to interact with other species mm-hmm. so we have you know countless cases of species that were perfectly docile, nice roadside plants where they grew originally, they got put on a ship, they got moved to a new continent, and now suddenly they are it's taking over the landscape. Right. That's when you hear about invasive species of yes. life. Well, now I can't get rid of it. Yeah. The nice thing about, you know, in this study, because they're coming from herbarium specimens, what it also means is that we have some information about where they were collected, oftentimes information about the ecology surrounding the area where they were collected, and it wasn't so, so long ago. So we can, you know, in some cases, we may have even weather records, you know, going back as old as the, uh, as the, um, the plant, as performing the species went extinct, um, contemporary weather records. So we have a better amount of information versus like, well, here's, we found a couple leg bones and they had <laughs> DNA in them. And I wonder what that animal is going to be like if we brought it <laughs> back to life. So, um, and then yeah. it starts stomping through and eating people. Yes. I think in, in this particular case, I wouldn't really be concerned. But if someone found, for example, a viable seed that had been preserved in you know, frozen mud or something from mm. 50,000 years ago or 500,000 years ago, then there might be a couple concerns of, <laughs> you know, we don't really know what this, what this plant likes what it needs to compete and survive. If it'll eat me. Right. <laughs> if there was something alive at the same time keeping its population in check that has since also gone extinct and therefore mm-hmm. now uh, might release it. So yeah, there are those concerns, but in this case, I think the risk is probably pretty low. How long will it be before attempts to germinate starts? Well, there have already been attempts to germinate seeds from herbarium specimens of plants that are not extinct. And so we do have some preliminary research from that work. Um, but I think it's probably going to depend on each species. Mm-hmm. And um, it could take maybe one or two years of research to maybe many years of research before scientists would be ready to actually um, go ahead and try to extract seeds from uh, a specimen of an extinct species and begin to germinate and propagate that species. So I should put in my calendar from a year from now, check in about these, about these seeds. You can, you can check in. I think, I think this is going to be a hot area of research, of research across the world. 
Um, this, this study was global in scope, and so I think a lot of conservationists are beginning to really think about this topic. And so I do think there will be this will be a fruitful avenue of research. Well, can I add something to that? Yes, as well you for, may, please. So in the case of herbarium specimens, a, a trend over the last maybe 50 years or so is we keep on finding new ways to use them as new technologies develop. So there's also kind of this this delicate balance of you don't want to use up the last of the material from a particular specimen, especially a really precious one that's you know ex- that we can't get any more of, uh, because for all we know, two years from now, someone will come through with some groundbreaking way of inducing germination in seeds that we thought were in fact no longer possible to germinate. Hmm. So we found this, for example, with with DNA. When I was even doing my dissertation uh, about 10 years ago, um, you would do you know, the, getting usable DNA out of herbarium specimens was a real hit or miss kind of a thing, and it was pretty labor intensive. People were doing it; they were, you know, being fairly successful. But it was kind of just getting going as a real source of molecular information for for different uh, research purposes. Mm. Now it is very much a, a routine thing because DNA sequencing technology has developed so much that you need a tiny little piece of herbarium material and you can get you know whole chloroplast genomes or you know sequences from across the genome a huge amount of data compared to what I very you know <laughs> worked very hard to squeeze out of a couple specimens uh, and then what you know my advisors uh, worked even harder longer hours to squeeze a few bits of protein information out of living plants so it's also bear- worth bearing in mind part of the reason we keep these and uh, we keep them under controlled conditions, you know, a nice moderate amount of relative humidity. We try to keep them cool is we're preserving them as well for the future generations and the future technological breakthroughs that we have no idea what's going to be possible in another 50 years, given uh, with herbarium specimens. What is something that you wish more people like understood about conservation, about herbaria, about your work? Well, I think this study is a great example of the value of our collections and how important they are um, to, to maintain because we're constantly coming up with new uses for these collections and new values. As uh, Jordan mentioned earlier, the botanists who initially collected these specimens probably in their wildest dreams weren't thinking about somebody 100 years from now extracting seeds from those specimens and potentially germinating the species that is now extinct in the wild. So I think it just exemplifies the importance of our collections and how we as a society need to value these collections. That was producer Maya Norfleet talking with Jordan Teicher, Garden Herbarium Director at Missouri Botanical Garden, and Mobot conservation scientist Matthew Albrecht. Their work to bring long-extinct flora back to life like Jurassic Park, but with plants and less dangerous, is part of a global conservation effort. And as it happens, Maya Norfleet is in the house to share a couple of interesting facts that didn't make it into the piece we just heard, but we should know. What's up, Maya? Hello. (laughs) So we heard herbaria and herbarium many times, but there were some facts that you picked up while you were visiting that didn't get into the piece. Mm -hmm. Tell us about those. Well, one of the things that um, blew my mind when myself and our photojournalist, Brian Munoz, visited is that they have um, another effort they're trying to do, which is digitizing the millions of specimens that they have in the Botanical Garden Herbarium. 
Um, when we were there, there was a colleague that was just snapping pictures, working. And they were telling us that in one hour, they'll take pictures, digitize 300 specimens an hour. So that in itself kind of just shocked me because it was just one person, <laughs> just one person doing it all, but getting it done. And did they give you a number as to how many specimens they had in their herbarium? Yeah, so um, Jordan mentioned that's like seven, over seven million. Seven million, okay, like. So the photographer has a lot of work ahead. (laughs) So much, so much work. The other thing that was talked about had to do with plant scientist facts Mm -hmm. and endangerment of them. Right. So in the piece, um, there was this thing about the seeds, that the longer they sit there, the more viability is lost Mm -hmm. uh, for using those specimens. Um, But plant scientists, there are not that many of them. No. Why is that? So what was explained to me is that, you know, just like any other programs and schools, they have to be funded. And so it seems like there's an ebb and flow of like, oh, my gosh, we need people who know what plants are. (laughs) And as the world keeps changing and specimen or species start going extinct it's kind of this like sudden shock and oh wow we have no one to study this let's fund it all and then you get more plant scientists and then they're like okay we have enough and then they kind of bring back those programs but it's like either uh, feast or famine when it comes to plant scientists and when we were there there was a gentleman who was just celebrated his 50th anniversary at just Missouri Botanical Garden Mm -hmm. and his whole job is just recognizing and knowing what the plant is, just being able to name it. So was there any sense among um, the interviewees that you spoke with, like, were they excited to talk with you about this thing that they're doing? And, you know, what was it like to connect with them? It was interesting because, you know, I, I jokingly said to them, like, you guys are speaking so quiet, but you hang out with dead plants all day. Like, why are y'all whispering? But I think it's one of those things where, You know, I love plants. I'm really interested in plants, usually the ones that are living. So when I was asking them questions, I think they, you know, kind of saw that, one, I had no idea that this place existed until I started working on this segment. And I like to think I know a thing or two about this city and plants. Mm -hmm. So just being able to have someone that doesn't work there all day, ask them, like, oh, yeah, we do do this. (laughs) Like, this is cool. Maya, what was the coolest thing you saw in the herbarium, and why was it so interesting to you? One of the things that um, Jordan and Matthew talked a lot about is how old the specimens are. So to, when we walked in, they had uh, two specimens laid out. One of them was from Charles Darwin. And so I was just like, you casually just keep Charles Darwin laying around. And they also had um, a specimen that... Uh, George Washington Carver himself had collected too. So that was really interesting to me because like, I don't know, just being in the presence of something that they touched, like they collected themselves from the field was just really cool to me. Maya Norfleet is a producer for St. Louis on the Air here at St. Louis Public Radio. Thanks for sharing those extra extinct plant facts with us, Maya. For sure. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. 
This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.